Chapter 5 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Escalante. Football Days by William Edwards, Chapter 5. Chapter 5, My Last Game. Every player knows the anxious anticipation and the nerve strain connected with the last game of the football season. In my last year, there were many men on the team who were to say goodbye to their playing days. Every player who reads these lines will agree with me that it was his keenest ambition to make his last game his best game. It was the fall of 1899. There are many of us who had played on a victorious team the year before. Princeton had never beaten Yale two years in succession. This was our opportunity. Our slogan during the entire season had been, On to New Haven. The dominating idea in the mind of everyone was to add another victory over Yale to the one of the year before. The Cornell game with its defeat was forgotten. We had learned our lesson. We had made a tremendous advance in two weeks. I recall so well the days before the Yale game, when we were leaving for New York en route to New Haven. We met at the varsity field house. I will never forget how strange the boys looked in their derby hats and overcoats. It was a striking contrast to the regular everyday football costumes and campus clothes. There were hundreds of undergraduates at the train station to cheer us off. As the train pulled out, the familiar strains of old Nassau floated after us, and we realized that the next time we would see that loyal crowd would be in the cheering section on the Princeton side at New Haven. We went directly to the Murray Hill Hotel, where Princeton has held its headquarters for years. After luncheon, Walter Christie, the trainer, took us up to Central Park. We walked about for a time and finally reached the obelisk. Biffy Lee, the head coach, suggested that we run through our signals. All of us doffed our overcoats and hats, and there on the expansive lawn, flanked by Cleopatra's Needle and the Metropolitan Art Museum, we ran through our signals. We then resumed our walk and returned to the hotel for dinner. The evening was spent in the hotel parlors where the team was entertained and had opportunity for relaxation from the mental strain that was necessarily a part of the situation. A general reception took place in the corridors. Players of old days came around to see the team, to revive old memories, and cheer the men of the team onto victory. Football writers from the daily papers mingled with the throng, and their accounts the following day reflected the optimistic spirit they encountered. The betting odds were quoted at 3-1 to one on Princeton. Betting odds is a way some people gauge the outcome of the football contest, but I have learned from experience that big odds are not justified on either side in a championship game. We were up bright and early in the morning and out for a walk before breakfast. Our team then took the 10 o'clock train for New Haven. Only those who have been through the experience can appreciate the difficulty encountered in getting on board a train for New Haven on the day of a football game. We were ushered to a side entrance, however, and were finally landed in the special cars provided for us. On the journey, there was a jolly good time. Good fellowship reigned supreme. That relieved the nervous tension. Arthur Poe and Bosey Ryder were the leading spirits of the jollification. A happier crowd never entered New Haven than the Princeton team that day. The cars pulled in on a siding near the station, and everybody realized that we were at last in the town where the coveted prize was. We were after the Yale ball. On to New Haven had been our watchword. We were there. Following a light lunch in our dining car, we soon got our football clothes and in short time the palatial Pullman car was transformed. It assumed the appearance of our dressing room at Princeton. Football togs hung everywhere. Nose guards, headgears, stockings, shin guards, jerseys, and other gridiron equipment were everywhere. Here and there the trainer or his assistants were limbering up joints that needed attention. Two big buses waited at the car platform. The team piled into them. We were off to the field. The team was made through a welcome of friendly salutes from Princeton men encountered on the way. Personal friends of individual players called to them from the sidewalks. Others shouted words of confidence. Old Nassau was out in overwhelming force. No team ever received more loyal support. 
They keyed the players up to the highest pitch of determination. Their spirits, naturally at a high mark, rose still higher under the warmth of the welcome. Repression was a thing of the past. Every player was jubilant and did not attempt to conceal the fact. The enthusiasm mounted as we neared the scene of the coming battle. As we entered the field, the air was rent by a mighty shout of welcome from the Princeton host. Our hearts palpitated in response to it. There was not a man on the team who did not feel himself repaid a thousandfold for a season's hard knocks. But this soon gave way to the sober thought of the work ahead of us. We were there for business. Falling on the ball, sprinting and limbering up, and running through a few signals, we spent the few minutes before the Yale team came through the corner of the field. The scenes of enthusiasm that had marked our arrival were repeated, the Yale stand being the center this time of the maelstrom of cheers. I shall not attempt to describe our own feelings as we got the first glimpse of our opponents in the coming fray. Who can describe the sensations of the contestants in the first moment of a championship game? But it was not long before the coin had been tossed and the game was on. Not a man who has played in the line will ever forget how he tried to block his man or get down the field and tackle the man with the ball. I recall most vividly those three strapping Yale centermen, Brown, Hale, and Alcott, flanked by Stillman and Francis. It was Al Sharp and McBride. Fink was at quarter. If there was any one play during the season that we had drilled into us, a play which we might have hoped to win the game, it was a long end run. It was Leah's pet play. I can recall the Herculean work we had performed to perfect this play. It was time well spent. The reward came within seven minutes after the game began. The end running ability of that great player, Bozy Ryder, showed. Every man was doing his part, and the play was made possible. Ryder scored a touchdown along the side of the field. I never saw a happier man than Bozy. But he was no happier than his ten teammates. They were leaping in the air with joy. The Princeton stand arose in solid body and sent an avalanche of cheers across the field. What proved to be one of the most important features of the game was a well-delivered punt by Bert Wheeler, who kicked the ball out to Hutchinson. Hutch heeled it in front of the goal, and Bert Wheeler boosted the ball straight over the crossbar, and Princeton scored an additional point. At that moment, we did not realize that this would be the decisive factor in the Princeton victory. As the Princeton team went back to the middle of the field to take their places for the next kickoff, the Princeton side of the field was a perfect bedlam of enthusiasm. Old grads were hugging each other on the sidelines, and every eye was strained for the next move in the game. At the same time, the Yale stand was cheering its side and urging the blue players to rally. McBride, the Yale captain, was rousing his men with the Yale spirit, and they realized what was demanded of them. The effect was evident. It showed how Yale could rise to an occasion. We felt that the old bulldog spirit of Yale was after us, as strong as ever. How wonderfully well McBride, the old captain, kicked that day. What a power he was on defense. I saw him do some wonderful work. It was after one of his long punts, which, with the wind in his favor, went about 70 yards, that Princeton caught the ball on the 10-yard line. Wheeler dropped back to kick. The old men were on their toes, ready to break through and block the kick. The old stand was cheering them on. Stillman was the first man through. It seemed as though he was offside. Wheeler delayed the kick, expecting that an offside penalty would be given. When he did kick, it was too late. The ball was blocked, and McBride fell on it behind the goal line, scoring a touchdown for Yale, making the score 6-5 to five in favor of Princeton. Believe me, the Yale spirit was running high. The men were playing like demons. Here was a team that was considered a defeated team before the game. There were 11 men who had risen to the occasion, and who were slowly but surely getting the best of the argument. Gloom hung over the Princeton stand. Defeat seemed inevitable. Of 11 players who started in the game on the Princeton side, 8 had been incapacitated by injuries of one kind or another. Doc Hillebrand, the ever-reliable All-American tackle, had been compelled to leave the game with a broken collarbone, just before McBride made his touchdown. I remember well the play in which he was injured. I have resurrected a photograph that was snapped of the game at the moment that he was lying on the ground, knocked out.
Bummy Booth, who had stood the strain of the contest wonderfully well, had played a grand game against Hale, giving way to Horace Bannard, rather Bill Bannard, the famous Princeton halfback of 98. Just then, I saw a man in football togs come out from the sidelines wearing a blue visor cap. He was to kick for the goal. It was an unusual spectacle in the football field. I rushed up to the referee, Ed Ridington of Harvard, and called his attention to the man with the cap. I asked if that man was in the game. Why, well, he replied with a broad smile, you ought to know him. He is the man you've been playing against all along, Gordon Brown. He only ran into the sideline to get a cap to shade his eyes. I am frank to say that this one was on me. The chagrin wore off when Brown missed a goal, which would have tied the final score and robbed Princeton of the ultimate victory. The tide of the battle turned towards Yale. Al Sharp kicked a goal from the field from the 45-yard line. It was a wonderful achievement. It is true that circumstances later substituted Arthur Poe for him as the hero of the game, but those who witnessed his sharp performance will never forget it. The laurels that he won by it were snatched from him by Poe only in the last half minute of play. The score was changing by Sharp's goal from 6-5 to five in our favor to 10-6, to six, Yale leading. The half was over. The score was 10-6 to six against Princeton. Every Princeton player felt that there was still a real opportunity to win out. We were all optimistic. This optimism was increased by the appeals made to the men in the dressing room by the coaches. It was not long before the team was back on the field, more determined than ever to carry the Yale ball back to Princeton. The last half of the game is everlastingly impressed upon my memory. Every man that played for Princeton, although eight of them were substitutes, played like a veteran. I shall ever treasure the memory of the loyal support that those men gave me as captain and the response to my appeal to stand together and play not only for Princeton, but for the injured men on the sidelines whose places they had taken. The Yale team had also heard some words of football wisdom in their dressing room. Previous encounters to Princeton had taught them that the Tiger could also rally. They came on the football field prepared to fight harder than ever. McBride and Brown were exhorting their men to do their utmost. Princeton was outrushing Yale, but not outkicking them. Yale knew that as well as we did. It was a Yale fumble that gave us a chance we were waiting for. Bill Roper, who had taken Lou Palmer's place at left end, had his eyes open. He fell on the ball. Through his vigilance, Princeton got the chance to score. Now was our chance. Time was passing quickly. We all knew that something extraordinary would have to be done to win the day. It remained for Arthur Poe to crystallize this idea into action. It seemed an inspiration. We've got to cook, he said to me, and I would like to try a goal from the field. We haven't got much time. Nobody appreciated the situation more than I did. I knew we would have to take a chance, and there was no one I would have selected for the job quicker than Arthur Poe. How we needed a touchdown or a goal from the field. Poe, Powell, and myself were the three members of the original team left. How the substitutes rallied with us and gave us the perfect defense that made Poe's feet possible is a matter of history. As I looked around for my position to see that the defensive formation was right, I recall how small Arthur Poe looked there in the fullback position. Here was a man doing something we had never rehearsed as a team, but safe and sure the pass went from Horace Bannard. And as Biffy Lee remarked after the game, when Arthur kicked the ball, it seemed to stay up in the air about 20 minutes. Some people have said that I turned a somersault and landed on my ear and collapsed. Anyhow, it all came our way at the end. The ball sailed over the crossbar. The score was 11-10, and the Princeton stand let out a roar of triumph that could be heard way down in New Jersey. There were but 36 seconds left for play. Yale made a splendid supreme effort to score further, but it was futile. Crowds had left the field before Poe made his great goal kick. They accepted a Yale victory as inevitable. Some say the bets were paid on the strength of this conviction. The Yale News, which went to press five minutes before the game ended, got out an addition saying that Yale had won. They had to change that story. During the second preceding post kick for a goal, I had a queer obsession. It was a serious matter to me then. I can recall it now with amusement. Big was a prefix not on my own selection. I had never appreciated its justification, however, until that moment. Or is Bannard was playing center. 
I had my left hand clasped under his elastic in his trouser leg, ready to form a barrier against the Yale forwards. Brown, Hale, and McBride tried to break through to block the kick. I thought of a million things, but most of all I was afraid of a block kick. To be frank, I was afraid I would block it, that Poe couldn't clear me, that he would kick the ball into me. I crouched as low as I could go, and the more I worried, the larger I seemed to be, and I feared greatly for what might occur behind me. It seemed as though I was swelling up. But finally, as I realized the ball had gone over me and was on its way to the goal, I breathed a sigh of relief and said, Thank God it cleared. How eager we were to get that ball, the hard-earned prize, which now rests in the Princeton Gymnasium, a companion ball to the one of the 1898 victory. Yes, it had all been accomplished, and we were happy. New Haven looked different to us. It was many years since Princeton had sent Yale down to defeat on Yale Field. Victory made us forget the sadness of our former defeats. It was a joyous crowd that rode back to the private cars. Varsity players and substitutes shared alike in the joy, which was unrestrained. We soon had our clothes changed, and we were on our way to New York for the banquet and celebration of our victory. Arthur Poe was the line of the hour. No finer fellow ever received more just tribute. It would have taken a separate volume to describe the instance of that trip from New Haven to New York. Before it had ended, we realized, if we never had realized it before, how sweet was victory, and how worthwhile the striving that brought it to us. Suffice to say that the Yale football was the most popular passenger on the train. Over and over, we played the game, and a million caresses were lavished upon the trophy. This may seem an excess of sentiment to some, but those who have played football understand. Looking back to the retrospect of 17 years, I realized that I not fully understand then the meaning of those happy moments. I now appreciate that it was simply the deep satisfaction that comes from having made good, the sense of real accomplishment. Enthusiastic Princeton men were waiting for us at the Grand Central Station. They escorted us to the Murray Hill Hotel and the wonderful banquet that awaited us. The spirit of the occasion will be understood by football players and enthusiasts who have enjoyed similar experiences. The members of the team just sat and listened to speeches by the alumni and coaches. It all seemed too good to be true. When the gathering broke up, the players became members of different groups who continued their celebration in the various ways provided by the hospitality of the great city. Hilly Brand and I ended the night together. When we awoke in the morning, the old football was there between our pillows, the banded shoulder and the collarbone of Hildebrand nestling close to it. Then came the home going of the team to Princeton and the huge bonfire that the whole university turned out to build. Some nearby woodyard was looking the next day for the 36 cords of wood that had served as a foundation for the victorious blaze. It was learned afterwards that the owner of the cordwood had backed the team, so he had no regret. The team was driven up in buses from the station. It was a proud privilege to light the bonfire. Every man on the Princeton team had to make a speech, and then we had a banquet at the Princeton Inn. Later in the year, the team was banqueted by the alumni organizations around the country. Every man had a pack of souvenirs, gold mat shapes, footballs, and other things. Nothing was too good for the victors. Well, well, to the victors belong the spoils. That is the verdict of history. End of chapter 5